0: The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might know not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came from out of the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe." Thus far the reading of God's word, let's, let's pray together once again. Father, we uh, do ask that you would speak to us this evening as we uh, come to hear your truth. We know that you send it forth into our midst and it will not return until it has accomplished the purpose for which you send it. Uh, we do pray that purpose would be that we might be the aroma of life to others. Lord, we pray that no one would leave this place this evening smelling of death. That we might know the life that's found in Jesus' name. Help us then to hear this word, to receive it, and to keep it. That we might find your promise of blessing in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. At Christmas Day 2004, came and went in Indonesia, just about as you would expect. Nothing too unusual took place. The festivities and ordinary movements of the day just went along. But it was the day after Christmas Day in 2004 that Indonesian experienced something that few people in human history have ever experienced. Some of you can recall that it was some 160 miles west of Sumatra, an earthquake shook underneath the Indian Ocean. And the scholars tell us that the ensuing tsunami uh, began to spin forth and pour forth with such energy that its energy was greater than all of the bombs of World War II combined. For within 15 minutes, waves cresting at 100 feet high burst upon Indonesia, killing hundreds of thousands. It eventually made its way to Thailand, killing countless others there, the same in Sri Lanka. So powerful was the force of this earthquake and the tsunami that it sent out that it even killed a few as far away as South Africa. And the reason I tell you that is because it was a tsunami from an earthquake that caused many people in the world to consider the realities of God. Is there a God? If so, how could He? let such a thing happen. I even spoke not long ago with a member of our church who told the story of someone in his church at the time who the tsunami shook that individual's faith to such a degree that it seems as though they left the faith altogether. If God rules over all things, how do we understand a God ruling over such natural disaster and calamity? And We come to an earthquake in our text tonight that makes That earthquake looked like a simple shock to the universe. But we come to an earthquake that is the earthquake genuinely to end all earthquakes. This is the earthquake that shakes the entire world. This is the earthquake that brings in the new heavens and the new earth. So two weeks ago, if you weren't with us, we looked through the first half of chapter 16. The first four bowls, the first four of seven that come in this chapter. And there's reason for us, after our break last week, to... Uh, consider for just a few minutes rehearsing what we talked about a few weeks ago. So you're a member of of the seven bowls that this is the last formal series of seven that John is going to receive in his apocalypse. It's going to thus be another vantage point he's going to get on human history between the coming of Christ to heaven in his ascension and the return of Christ from heaven in his uh, second return. Uh, But we said that there's something about the seven bowls that seem to a point forward to really the end of all things, that there's this noticeable intensification and amplification of God's work in the world. Which is why, if you even glance back to chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 1, that it's with these seven bowls that bring forth seven plagues that we're told the wrath of God is finished. And so, as we come to the end of these seven bowls that bring seven plagues, our theme then tonight is the end is here. So kids, if you've ever wanted to know what the end of the world is going to look like, you're going to get some truth in this text tonight. Students, if you've ever wanted to know what it means to live in light of the pending end of the world, well, you too will get some truth in this text tonight. If you've ever wondered why there is comfort in the promise of God's wrath, you'll again get truth in this text tonight because in the first four bowls, We saw that these bowls are really bowls of wrath, and we mentioned two weeks ago how the first four bowls show us three things, truths about God's wrath. The first is God's wrath is personal. Uh, We saw that it comes from His very presence in heaven. Secondly, God's wrath is total, that there is no evil that will ultimately be left untouched by His righteous justice. And thirdly, God's wrath is suitable. And you see that if you glance back up just before our text begins to verses 5 through 7 of chapter 16 as the angel in charge of the waters says, "...it is what they deserve, sinners drinking this bloody drink." And the martyrs around the altar in verse 7 saying, "...yes and amen, it is just and true, this punishment." And so the the wrath will continue to pour forth tonight. It's a wrath that again tells us the end is here. And we'll see a few more things about God's wrath. But noticeably, I want to focus your attention tonight, not just on the fact that the end is coming in this chapter, but also how God relates to His enemies. So we have three bowls. So We've got three headings. The first of which is the blinding of God's enemies. Look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched with fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over the plagues, and they did not repent and give Him glory. So that was the final bowl that poured forth on the natural world. And the final three bowls speak about the bowls poured forth on the kingdom of the beast. Thus, verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. So kids, I want you to notice the location of the fifth bowl before you see its effect. It's poured forth on the throne of the beast, which we can say that's Satan's seat of power in the world. We've noticed many times already in our study of Revelation that the beast is the anti-Christian government that marks the world at the time. And we've said so often that for the original readers of Revelation, that would be none other than the Roman Empire. And this bowl falls falls upon the anti-Christian government with such a degree of power that they're plunged into darkness. And you might remember from two weeks ago or even a few months ago when we talked about the trumpets as well. The trumpets, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, they often have these kind of reflecting realities to plagues that God poured forth on Egypt in the Exodus. And you might remember there was this plague of darkness that He poured forth on Egypt. It was actually said to be darkness that was so heavy and, and thick that you could... Feel it. So darkness, I'm sure, unlike anything you have ever experienced before. And kids, did that plague of darkness lead Pharaoh to repent of his error? No, it didn't, and this plague won't do that either. You'll see verse 10 into verse 11. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. You must understand here that it's those who remain apart from Jesus Christ, those who remain unrepentant, that believe their judgment, their punishment, their affliction is always undeserved. That they're blinded by their sin, the harsh realities that come to them in life. They believe, I shouldn't have received that. That wasn't something that I deserved. But it's of course a mark of a true Christian, isn't it, to know that our sin means we know that we deserve nothing other than damnation and death. So any blessing we get, no matter how small, no matter how large, we know it is undeserved because of God's grace towards us. In fact, children, it's one of the truest ways that you show forth a true rebirth by the Spirit in your soul. That you recognize what your sin deserves, namely God's wrath and punishment. The blinding of God's enemies with the fifth bowl leads to the gathering of God's enemies with the sixth bowl. Uh, there was a time in my life, largely in my high school years, where I tended to spend much of the summer uh, away from my family. And I was often just traveling for various soccer-related uh, training camps and, and gatherings and There was one team that I was playing with uh, when I was about 14 years old that we would uh, gather for many weeks in a row. And invariably, we would have times where we were having a day off and and we were meant to just relax and try to regenerate our body was the phrase that they often used. And so that summer, what we tended to do is that we would go to a local movie theater and we'd prop our legs up and take in a double feature. And I remember in the summer of, of 1998, we took in a double feature of the end of the world. Because we started that afternoon with a movie called Deep Impact, and we ended that afternoon with a movie more infamously known, it's a movie called Armageddon, a nearly destroyed world twice over in the course of one day. And of course, you probably know from our reading of the text that that word, Armageddon, it comes from our passage tonight. And in this sixth bowl, it's all about the gathering of God's enemies for the end of all things. You see verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. In the Old Testament, you'll find a number of prophecies where God talks about the drying up of the Euphrates. And this would signal that he's coming in judgment upon his enemies, but also he's coming in salvation for his people. And this prophecy that you'll find in the Old Testament was actually fulfilled with Uh, The reign of a king named Cyrus, he diverted water from uh, the Euphrates and he marched over its now shallow depths towards Babylon. And this king from the east came and and crushed this empire that was very much God's enemy in the world. And it seems as though John in his vision is hearing this truth that the end of all things is going to be just like that. It's going to be kings marching from the east, God preparing the way for people that he is soon To shatter, for notice verse 13 and 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." The other day, I saw one of the children racing to the yard, chasing down a toad or a frog. And I thought to myself as I was as passing by, I'm not sure anyone has ever mistaken a toad or a frog for being cute. Because, of course, there are always seemingly these kind of symbols of ugliness, frankly. And kids, when you think about this satanic trinity, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet burping out frogs. Uh, You should see something grotesque in that imagery. And that's exactly what this sixth bowl is announcing. Uh, This satanic trinity, the dragon representing Satan, the beast representing anti-Christian government, the false prophet representing anti-Christian religion, will all, at the end of the age, coalesce in such a way that the text doesn't tell us, but coalesce nonetheless to gather people who will come to meet God on the great day of His battle. And where they will meet, you'll notice verse 16, is that place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. Armageddon just means Mount Megiddo. And one of the reasons why I think you, you should take this location of the sixth plague is something that is symbolic and metaphorical in many ways because anyone who knows ancient geography would know that there was no Mount Megiddo, it was just a plain. Megiddo was a plain, it was an actual well-known place in Israelite history where some, some battles happened where God victoriously won the victory over His enemies. And so He's saying the exact same thing is going to happen. That God is gathering forces and the pouring out of this bowl, gathering together. That they might come against Him in that final collision at the end of all things. So the blinding and gathering of God's enemies leads to the seventh bowl and the shattering of God's enemies. And it's a bowl that every time I read it, I can't find myself not going back to C.S. Lewis's final volume in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle. It has some striking echoes to Revelation if you've ever noticed it before. There's this false lion king set up in charge, and eventually it leads to this great battle between true and false Narnians. And there's a moment in which the stars fall from the sky and are cast into the sea, and the moon and the sun is is blotted out, announcing that the end is here, and the end is here, and the shattering of God's enemies. Notice verse 17: The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple, from the throne saying, it is done. Students, we know that that voice from the throne is none other than the voice of God Himself. Those final three words announcing that His kingdom inaugurated is finally here. His reign established is now finally here. His victory over His enemies worked in part through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and subsequent resurrection from the grave is now finally here. It's the cataclysmic collision that leads to the shattering of all his enemies. You'll see as the text continues, there's lightning and rumblings, thunder, this great earthquake that was the greatest the world has ever seen. And you'll see verse 19, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, if you've been with us in our studies of Revelation, you should not be surprised that we take Babylon the Great. This this great city to be nothing less than speaking about the city of man. The ruler of all the kings of the world that oppose God and the Lamb. It's the place of sinners. And they will be made, she will be made, to drink to the very bottom the wine of the fury in his cup of wrath. And if you wanted to know, children, how terrifying it is for anyone to drink that cup of wrath, you just glance in verse 20 symbolically saying that it's so terrifying the islands and the mountains want to flee from the fury that is God's wrath, the shattering of His enemies. God's wrath falls with the bowls. The end is here. What does that mean for you, what should that mean for us? Emily and I recently watched a few episodes of a show that came forth I think sometime last year in Masterpiece Theater. It's one of those shows that uh, begins with a warning or an announcement of sorts that says, inspired by true events. And the inner historian in me has my attention raised when I see inspired by true Events Because you want to know if you're anything like me, well, what's fact and what's fiction in what we're watching? And I actually know quite a bit about what this one was about, and it became clear pretty early that everything that was at the center of the drama in this story is all speculative. Nobody knows if any of this happened, but nevertheless, it's the center in this speculative inquiry of drama. And the good news about Revelation is all of its symbolism as that is never speculative. It calls us to truth and demands certain responses to that truth. So we need not speculate on what God requires from anyone who would hear it. And I want you to see that as we begin to close with the two final responses that He gives to us in the text. Number one, the bulls call unbelievers to repentance. The bulls call unbelievers to repentance. And significantly, the awestruck, overwhelming reality of God's wrath poured out in the bowls is not leading them to repentance. You notice the end of the fifth bowl. They cursed the God of heaven and their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds Or the end of the seventh bowl. These great hailstones, verse 21, about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. These are announcements. These are warnings to you this evening. That in light of the coming wrath that falls upon anyone who remains in unbelief. You must repent of your sin. Otherwise, like that great city of Babylon. Symbolizing all of sinful people. You will drink the cup of God's fury to its very terrifying bottom. That's of course the great mercy that's found even in this warning, isn't it? Because we know from the pages of God's Word itself that He sent His Son out of His eternal love to drink that very cup. And Jesus knew the degree to which God's wrath was horrifying. Jesus knew the degree to which His fury was terrifying. Because you remember when He lay there in the garden of Gethsemane praying before the Lord, sweating these sweat drops of blood. He said, Lord, take this cup and let it pass from me. but not my will but your will be done. And God because of his love for sinners like you said no son you must drink that cup. And Jesus because of his great love for sinners said I will I will drink that cup to the very last dreg and drip. So that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in me might receive the cup of life instead of the cup of wrath. So the bowls are calling unbelievers to repentance. Secondly and finally, the bulls call believers to readiness, to readiness. Because glance back up to verse 15. If your Bible is anything like mine, it may be in red there, this parenthetical statement from Jesus Christ in verse 15, where it says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen, exposed. Unbelievers must repent in light of the pending wrath that will come at the end. Well, what about God's people? What about those who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? There's nothing more than constant vigilance, constant watchfulness, constant readiness so that you might not be caught out unaware. It's this word that's meant to keep God's people from spiritual apathy, spiritual lethargy, that they may always be ready in doing good deeds. They might always be ready in their love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ so that when The bridegroom arrives. The bride is ready to go with him. I wonder how much you think about the end of all things. It so often is the furthest thing from our thought, isn't it? But the bowls are bringing it to our attention tonight, saying that they're coming. The bowls of wrath will be poured out on the earth and the end will then be here. So have you repented? Are you Ready. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would help us to respond to your word with faith, with repentance, with readiness, and with eagerness. Father, we ask again that you would give us a heart that is full of the mind of Christ that knows the truth, that lives in light of the truth, that carries the truth with faithfulness and sincerity. So give us a heart that's always ready for the end, a mind's eye that's always looking for the end, as we long to see the King in His beauty. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.